Good morning. Would you take God's word and turn to Philippians chapter 3? For those that are watching online and for the first time or here this morning for the first time, we've been going through a series in the book of Philippians, and we are at verses 20 and 21 this morning. If you haven't noticed, we're battling a worldwide disease, and it's far more deadly than we realize. It's called sin. 100% mortality and infection rate. (laughs) No one's immune. No one will escape. And there's only one possible cure. And his name's Jesus. We just honored him by remembering the sacrifice he made for everyone who desires to be free from sin. He has conquered the power of sin. He has conquered the death that sin brings. And this must be the sacredness of our worship. We worship to an audience of one, amen? Amen. And so much of our history in the American church has been about our preferences and our comforts. It it reminds me of the passage in Isaiah 29. I mean, there is nothing new under the sun. And Isaiah writes this in 29, verse 13. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is based on mere human rules that they've been taught. I sense what we need today is an encounter with God. Not a knowledge about him, but a personal and corporate as a church encounter with him. And as our world gets more angry, more fearful, more opinionated, we need more than ever for the church to be in unity that worships an incredible, powerful God that we just sang about. Now, what that means on the flip side is we have to stop dividing over things this world and our egos divide us over. Why? Because people's lives are at stake. So here we come to Philippians chapter 2. This is what we've been talking about, what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what Paul writes. And again, last week, remember he talked about how we need to imitate Christ. And we don't imitate this world. But he kind of frames this in a new way. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. Following Jesus. Paul's been talking about it's a particular mindset. Remember Philippians chapter 2? Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Then verses 5 through 11, he talked about the humanness of Jesus. Then he talked about the divinity of Jesus. And this text parallels last week and Philippians 2, that we're to be imitators of Christ. We're not to adopt or imitate our world. And here what Paul says, we adopt a moral framework, which means we live, okay? Yes, we think this way, but we live this way that is part of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of this world. Yes, we live here, but as the Bible says, we are sojourners. We're traveling through. Now, biblically, 
there's a particular moral framework that Paul says we need to include in our lives. And we've been talking about that for the last several months. When you compare that to our present culture, they tell us today that we should be amoral, which means, well, let me give you the definition. By the way, amoral framework is a moral framework, even though they say it's not. But here's what they say. No one can criticize your choices. You have the right to choose. So this past week, a well-known music star, I don't know really who she is. It's not important, but here's what she put or what she posted. And it really illustrates where people are at today. She goes, today is a day I'm so happy to share more of my life with you all. I am proud to let you know that I identify as non-binary and will officially be changing my pronouns to they and them moving forward. This is coming after a lot of healing and self-reflective work. I'm still learning and coming into myself, and I don't claim to be an expert or a spokesperson, but I'm sharing this with you now opens a new level of vulnerability for me. I'm doing this for those out there that haven't been able to share who they truly are with their loved ones. Please keep living in your truths and know I'm sending so much love your way. And to that statement, she was applauded. Now, I don't read that so we can sit here and mock. Remember last week? Paul says with tears, I think this should make us weep because this is what we applaud today. Now, having said that, that's what they say is the new moral framework. They contradict themselves because, and yet, when something like CRT or Israeli-Palestinian conflict, racial tensions, they say the only right way to think is their way. And that's really the hypocrisy of their own thinking. Let me give an example. And again, this is merely an observation. I'm not making a statement. But in our culture today, we talk about the freedom of speech. Social media platforms choose today to cancel certain political posts or information that does not fit their narrative. Now, part of the argument is that the platforms are private businesses. They can do what they want, canceling misinformation and hate speech, except when it comes to baking a cake that violates a business's moral framework. Then that's discrimination. Now, having said that, the same platform refuses to take down information related to the porn industry. Now, here's what science tells us about the porn industry. Because of social media and because of our phones and everything else, children as young as eight are now being introduced into this way, this moral framework. They know it's linked to violence against women. They know it's linked to the breakdown of families. They know it has the distortion of sexual identities. FBI has stats now how child porn is the fastest growing crime in the U.S. and how 85% of people who view child porn victimize a child in their lifetime. We also know with all the access to social media platforms in the last decade, the U.S. sex trade industry has grown 842%. The same social media platform that cancels certain misinformation refuses to touch this industry in the name of free speech. And so I'm just pointing out the obvious contradiction of that. We know the science of what porn does. We know what it destroys in this country. 
Now contrast that with Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See the contrast? One worldview does what? Steals, kills, it destroys. We talked about that last week. The other worldview does what? It brings life and it brings abundant life. And see, this goes back to the previous verses. Worldviews matter. The one worldview is an enemy of the cross. It's an enemy of what we've done here this morning in partaking of communion. Paul says it will destroy us. He says the desires are their gods. Their shame is their glory. Their mind is set on this world. And that's the prince in power that we call Satan. Our enemy is this ideology that's infected people's thinking and living. It's not the people themselves. And with everything that's going on around us, we must be discerning because we have the opportunity to bring light to darkness. Paul says it this way. He says, I live my life as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Okay, I'm in prison, but that's an opportunity to advance the gospel. It's not my circumstances that define my influence. It is my God who defines my influence. Big difference, isn't there? But this opportunity to bring light to darkness we cannot join in that darkness. And it's not a fight against people. It's a fight how we think and then how we live. So Paul says this, live like you belong to Christ. Now let's take this text apart. Here was the first phrase. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now the word citizenship is where we get the word politics from or polis city. And it's only used one other place in Scripture, and it's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Here it's a noun, there it's a verb. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That manner of life, it's the same word citizenship. And what Paul says is we do not let this world define us. We are followers of Christ. This is where we have our value. And it changes everything about how we live here. We think differently. We act differently. Christ is who we imitate. Why? Because he brings life. He brings abundant life. The other option is destruction. The other option is the enemy of life. Now, Paul states it this way when he was talking to the church of Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So anything that counters Jesus Christ... We say no to and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The word taking captive there means prisoner of war. What we think matters, what we feed in our mind matters. The enemy has disinformation campaign going on. He wants you to believe things that are not true. And that's why Satan is called the angel of lights. There is some truth in it, but ultimately it's a lie, and he is the master of lies. Amen? Amen? I mean, here's what's happening in our world. I was reading some articles about the church overseas and what's going on there. In countries like Sweden and Ireland, the official church is now removing words like husband and wife and man and woman from their marriage ceremonies and policies because it no longer reflects God's intent for our world. That's their statement. 
Now, what I find disturbing that if we maintain a biblical mindset in terms of morals, you see there's a growing movement worldwide that accuses us that we are what's wrong in the world. And it's really what I call forced compliance. They try to bully us into their way of thinking because we want to be liked. And again, our goal is not, not to be liked. Our goal is to imitate Christ. But what does this mean? Does that mean we simply go around telling all the people around us they're wrong? I don't think so. What it does mean is that we take time to listen to their stories and bring the truth of Christ to that story. What it means is we can affirm the value and dignity of people because it says that everyone is made in the image of God. And that's what defines their value. That's what defines their meaning. That's what defines their purpose. And we can do that with people without approving of their choices. Now, many of you know I spent time in San Francisco back in 1975 and 1976, and I lived right in the middle of a subgroup of a gay community. It was called the sadomasochistic uh, community. And um, being a farm boy out of Lancaster County, and you only heard of this, I got to sit down and hear their stories. And their stories were profoundly different than mine in terms of the families they were raised, in terms of what happened to them as young kids. I remember leaving that year, and what that year taught me was that I saw people very differently than I did when I first went in. When you got to hear their stories and you got to look into their eyes, you realized they were someone's son or daughter. When you heard their stories and you heard their journeys, you realized they were people seeking life, hope, and love. And for the most part, the church in that city was on the outside looking in rather than walking among them and walking with them to Christ. It wasn't true for all the churches. I remember going to one of the churches that really walked with them in their journeys. But in our culture, if you haven't noticed, we've lost the, abil- we've lost the ability to have conversations, haven't we? Especially with people we disagree with. What happens is we turn into shouting matches and we lob accusations, and this is what the world does. They shout you down, but we are citizens of heaven, and our way is very different, amen? Amen. So we work on our faith from the inside out. That's what this means. This is who we are. Who we are translates into what we do, and it's more than behavior modification, This is part of the pressing on and the straining forward. It's part of seeing life as an opportunity to advance the gospel. And what all this comes down to is our inner strength. It's our core. I used to run cross country back in high school. And I remember a particular race. Nobody was happy about the race. Why? Because there was sustained winds of 30 to 35 mile an hour. And much of the course was straight into the headwind. Now, we already knew the times were going to be slow. You cannot run into that kind of headwind and make good time. We all had the same training. Physically, we were ready. But the question was, who had the mental stability to run through that wind? I remember leaning into the wind at times. A 50-mile-an-hour gust would come, and it would kind of blow you back, and you just keep going. And all of us were never so happy when we finished that line and got through and just kind of said, okay, Hopefully next 
day, it'll be a lot calmer. But you know, I reflect upon that race and I think, isn't that how we live? We strain, we press, and there's times that we just get blown back by the wind, but we keep going towards that finish line. That was a sermon a few weeks ago that Paul was talking about that race. Let's look at the next phrase. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the early church had a doctrine of the last things, and there was three main points of those doctrine of last things. One was the return of Jesus, two was the resurrection of the body, and three was the final judgment. When you study Scripture, the return is what gave them the most hope. It's how they face their sorrows. It's how they face their persecutions. It's how they face death and plagues and martyrdom. And the desire for the return of Jesus is mentioned in every single New Testament book except for Galatians. Peter calls it a living hope, and Paul calls it a blessed hope. And what Paul says here is that the return should have profound bearing on our lives. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And again, just later on in chapter 2, he says, We exhorted one another, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We celebrated communion. It's fixing our eyes on what we have. That's both present and future. What do we have in Jesus presently? We have grace. We have forgiveness. We have a spirit who enables us beyond our efforts. We have a selfless community of people to gather for the cause of Christ to invest in people's lives. We have peace, joy. We have love, the fruit of the spirit. And what we have is a place, or at least this should be a place. I was just talking to someone about this this morning. That, you know, when, when somehow we mess up in life, normally we hide and we run away. But what Christ says we should do is we should run to the church. Because this is where presently we find Jesus. We make all the excuses. We have all the reasons in the world that we want to take control of our lives. Why? Because we know better and we can fix it. But we lie to ourselves, don't we? And we lie to everyone around us. And we keep walking that path of destruction. We follow our bellies. We hold up our shame as our glory. We keep believing the lies of this world. And we talked about that last week. But see, we also have a future. You know, the next phrase, Paul talks about something that's really important. Here's what he says in that verse. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, we sang a lot about the power of God, but there's good news and bad news here. Good news is we're going to be transformed. And here's the bad news. Bad news is for all the people that think they're all that (laughs) when they look into a mirror. Bad news is people that say to themselves, you know what? This, this, This body looks pretty good. 
Well, I got difficult news for you. Paul says what? Your body is lowly. Okay? Doesn't matter what you think when you look in the mirror. You can primp it, paint it, tan it, exercise it, compare it. The Bible says it is lowly. Get over it. Now, here's the good news. God will make you over when he returns. And we have a little glimpse of that. We see him sitting down in his resurrection body, eating fish and walking through walls. We say, how can that be? I don't know, but we get to do that. Amen? Amen. I don't want anybody leaving here this morning saying, well, Pastor Greg said my body's lowly. No, Paul said it, okay? <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The only thing he's going to be dominated by is Christ. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and then the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Read that phrase. The body is what? It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here's the problem today. We make a God out of our bodies. But Paul says our bodies are meant for the Lord. It's a God-created body. And it's a God-redeemed body. Romans 8, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of as sons. (laughs) And he says what? And the redemption of our bodies. You ever feel like that? You wake up saying, can't wait to get the new one because this one here kind (coughs) of, excuse me, hurts. Doesn't move like it used to. How's all this possible? It's by the power that enables him, that brings everything into subjection to him. And that turns us back to Philippians 2, one of the critical passages in Scripture, I believe. And I keep rereading this because I think we just don't get it right. I think we just don't understand this. But listen to this again in Philippians 2. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're to think this way, we're to live this way. Who, though he was in the form of God, which meant he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let go of this God stuff, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He came to serve, not to be served. Being born in the likeness of men, he looked like us, he walked like us, he had hunger like us, he experienced pain like us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. And if he has to humble himself, what does that mean for us? (laughs) How do we humble ourselves? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what that means is we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
And this should be our guiding moral framework. We're called to live a life worthy of this kingdom. In this kingdom, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we're valued, we're blessed, we're children of God. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up because we're going to sing a song called Victory in Jesus, but I'm going to read a passage while they come up. It's found in Ephesians, and I'm not going to put it on the screen. I want you to listen to it with your mind's eye. So how I do that is I just kind of close my eyes and listen to these words that Paul writes. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That is us. We're called to be the church and to live in a way that just breaks in on the darkness that's around us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and just declare the victory we have in Jesus.